Hello, welcome to the D Program podcast. I am one of the two hosts. I'm Dexter. Uh, my wife Shannon is. Uh, she doesn't sit in on the intros. Um, hopefully today you are in a good place. You know, right now I'm sitting in my front, you know, little office area. Sun's hitting me in the face, and uh, just staring out the window at a partially finished chicken tractor, actually. So. Uh, If you don't know what that is, uh, follow me on Instagram and I'll show you what a partially finished chicken tractor looks like. Uh, Anyway, uh, today's episode is over cultural residue. This uh, idea is kind of set with me for a long time as I explain in the episode. Uh, It kind of started with a book called Born to Run, which I actually do need to make a little addition here right at the beginning of the podcast. Whenever I am talking about humans being the best runners uh, out of the animal kingdom i'm talking about long distance running not sprinting Uh, obviously there's a lot of animals that are far more efficient at sprinting distances but over very long distances the human form is the most efficient form for running long distances Uh, that's kind of the argument in the book anyway uh, cultural residue really in the book, you know, they talk about shoes kind of morphing your feet. And, you know, I, I grew up uh, wrestling and rock climbing and uh, playing football where you strap your feet in super tight. And, you know, my feet do kind of curve in at the, at the front. And it almost looks like I'm wearing a shoe even when I'm not wearing a shoe. Uh, so whenever I read that in the book, it kind of hit me instantly. I was like, wow, you know, maybe I did morph my foot by like, you know, strapping on different types of shoes. and But then I also wore a lot of, like, skateboarding shoes, which are really wide. I, so I don't know. I don't that the uh, The concept might not hold up. But anyway, I want to throw that correction in right at the beginning. You'll know what I'm talking about in the episode. Uh, but cultural residue, that's the topic. Uh, the idea is kind of like what are we passing down, uh, not only to our... Uh, children but also to the people around us you know like what what is uh, being passed down and around I guess Um, so a little bit of an update Uh, we are putting out episodes on the 15th of each month which you know we're about to do Uh, we've been busy we're doing a lot of different things Uh, we're trying to kind of rework the website uh, we're around the farm. We're doing a lot of different, like I'm going to, I'm starting to experiment with a garden. I'm just doing a family garden this year, but the idea is experimenting with how can we grow it to a bigger thing. And I'm going to try to do chickens and we're going to try to do some different stuff. So we're, uh, we have an Instagram called, uh, the Curly Cultivation and you can follow along on that. Uh, it's a pretty, pretty good that's where we're going to try to post all that kind of stuff Uh, because you know like the other day we were hiking because the kids found this like sand pile uh, in a creek nearby and so we were hiking over there they like to dig through it and find like cool rocks and stuff and as we were hiking uh, just right there in the middle of the trail I found a arrowhead you know um And, you know, that just slaps you in the face whenever you're hiking this trail, you know, and you find an arrowhead and then you have to imagine, like, when was that arrowhead dropped in that spot, you know? 
uh, it could have been, I don't know, 300 years. Uh, maybe if, if there's a scholar in the audience, maybe they can hit me up with that information. Um, in this area, I'm pretty sure it was, um, chair, or not, let's see, Comanche, I think down here. But it was probably one of the subsidiary tribes. I think there was actually like six or seven tribes that were Comanche or Comanchera, which was like the larger nation, I believe. And I think that those Indians were down in this area, or Native Americans. I don't know what term. I, I don't mean any disrespect. I actually think, um, you know, my, my ancestry is from Mexico, and they think that there was a lot of Indian blood in me, you know, from uh, Native Americans, but just South Central Americans, whatever. Anyway, all I'm saying is I thought it was super cool. And when that slaps you in the face, it is kind of, you know, uh, it gives you a perspective, you know. And so that's all we're really trying to offer is uh, a little bit of a different perspective. But so we've been working on that. Um, also, another thing that Shannon has been working on and you might be interested in is the Buyer Cattle Company. Uh, my father-in-law, uh, he's running a breeding program. He's breeding uh, Angus uh, animals, uh, cows, you know, heifers and bulls or whatever. Anyway, he is breeding them, and as it goes, you end up with – anyway, all that to say we got some beef. You know, we got beef for sale. So if you are at all interested, uh, that's another thing that Shannon's been working on is like some of the licensing to where we can possibly break out – individual cuts and but it's all licenses you have to get all this stuff to even take possession of the meat from the slaughterhouse you know uh, i i guess these things are good you know to to try to in, ensure that food is is healthy or safe and everything that's what that's what the ultimate goal is right is to get the highest quality of food but so shannon's been working on that uh, i think she's got it figured out but you know, eventually we'll be offering that kind of stuff. Uh, that's the, my father-in-law, uh, his herd, you know, that I help out with a little bit. Um, but he does, he does most of the, most of the work with them. And, you know, really, if you're wanting to know where your food comes from and have some sort of a connection, uh, these small scale meat producers, uh, is a great way to do it because you can actually have a relationship. Like, one of the people that bought from Ted uh, came out and he was like, I think a doctor from Fort Worth, but he came out and spent some time with the animal. He wanted to see how it was uh, treated and, you know, what kind of food it was being fed and where it was living and just kind of, you know, you want to buy a, a nice, healthy, happy animal, in my opinion, you know, especially uh, if you know you're going to be eating it. And so uh, you want it to be clean and sanitary and uh, so he's had people come out here and, and spend some time, you know, with the, with the cow before it, it goes to, to processing. So anyway, uh, if you're interested in all that, you can follow me at Panhandle Primate, uh, on Instagram. And I have all the links in my, in my bio underneath. And then that will take you to the website uh, if you're listening on Spotify or Apple and you want to check out my website. I've got a couple of short stories up there, but we're really wanting to revamp that a little bit. We just haven't gotten to it yet. So let's see where we at here. I have to go through these notes just to make sure that I don't you know, forget something because I will. 
Um, okay, one little addition I wanted to add to the episode before we start is I have a, a portion over body modification where we're talking about different ways of modifying your body. And I can't believe that I overlooked um, bodybuilders. Um, you know, I don't really know what to say because they're from all over the world, but it's almost like first world bodybuilders, if you know what I mean. Like uh, people who li- literally just like live in these like, you know, gyms. Uh, pretty nice gyms and they're just, you know, getting crazy huge and, you know, that's a form of body modification, no doubt. Like they, uh, in an, in uh, an often amazing way, you know, like you think of like Arnold Schwarzenegger and all of these huge names. Um, now you think of like guys like the rock, these huge, just, you know, massive human beings. Um, it is, you know, cool and, you know, more power to them or whatever, but just, uh, I didn't mention that in the episode. Uh, go forth with that knowledge uh, and and apply it to the episode when it comes up. Anyway, hope you enjoy this episode. Uh, we are enjoying doing this. Uh, and until next time, I guess, uh, peace out. What gives you the right? Well, I am a ticking time bomb of fury. This can't be happening, man. This isn't happening. Let's see it. Well, what if there is no tomorrow? So stop melting, ladies, because the boy is hotter than hot. I'm the best chance you've got. appropriate well if i start getting too loud just tell me and i'll just push the mic back no i think you're good i can start leaning back as i talk louder actually i think that's a good that's probably a good level and it really doesn't matter too much people can adjust (laughs) they can comment and say man shannon's really loud yeah they can turn their stuff up or they can turn their stuff down okay so this might be i sometimes coming into these shannon and i will talk for, uh, you know, the preceding week or two about what the idea is, what the concept is. And most of the time, I feel like we come to a pretty, uh, an agreement as to what the show, the content's going to be. But this one, what I think we both kind of realized through the, through the process of talking it out was that it's probably a large, it, it, it'd be introducing like a larger topic that we would then have to do subsequent shows in a more specific direction about. Is that fair to say? What, this this episode will be kind of broad? Yes. Yeah, introductory. I guess that's Introductory, fair. yeah. And so the idea is cultural residue. And I originally had, I don't know what gave me this that that term cultural residue you know but i was thinking about just the things that it's really hard to shake you know like for instance um trying to think of a of a good quick example something like private property right uh it wasn't until i started looking into some of the more anarchistic thoughts and uh specifically a book called the anarchist handbook by michael malice uh, he has a one, you know, a couple of his whole catchphrase for the book is uh, the black flag, which is the flag of anarchy, comes in many colors. 
was kind of an interesting idea. But he had communist anarchists, socialist anarchists, capitalist anarchists. It's a whole bunch of different subcultures. Uh, but one of the things was this concept of uh, private property not being uh, a God-given law. What if the private property is in se- itself a construct? Which, saying it now, it seems like it should be pretty obvious. But for me, for most of my life, I don't know if that was that obvious. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Does that make sense? I mean, definitely, because there's things that we grow up with that we're told is correct, and you don't second-guess it until you get old enough to second-guess it. Well, yeah, or until you even... It's almost uh, provided a contrast, you know? Like, what is white until you see black, you know? Yeah. That concept. But anyway, so... Uh, it's kind of dealing with that, Im, uh, that implanted sentiment, you know, that I was, that I had the cult, the idea for cultural residue, but I would say that this idea has stretched back for me for a while. And, uh, there was, I was going to mention three books that, uh, instilled it, maybe not instilled it, brought it to the surface, the concept in my mind. Uh, the first one I read in high school is 1984. So it's a dystopian story about a super state which uses propaganda and controls uh, words and like meanings of words. Yeah, it tries to control and censor the language. It's a lot about censorship. A lot about censorship. Um, but it's all about it, it implants these sentiments into the characters and so they know what's right or wrong. And and I don't know, I guess this is a little bit into the book, but it almost seems like the state would set up the mechanism for them to fail. You know? Like it's like the store that he goes in and buys that little antique. Yeah. And they almost they allow that store to exist. That way if somebody does go dissident, well, they I think go the whole point. Um Gosh, there's a, a phrase for it that I can't even think of now. But it's there to catch those that are going to um There's a phrase rebel. in the book? No, no, oh. just like I think that in general there's a phrase. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Almost like a honeypot or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that, yeah, yeah. No, would that be the right phrase or is there another one? I'm no, honeypot's not the right phrase, but that that's... Uh, Dang, what would that phrase be? I can't think of it, but it, it's there Entrapment. to attract those people who would veer off. Yeah, it's like the... Uh, it's like... Have you seen the people that set the bike up in the park? They'll leave it against a tree, but then they tie a rope to the to the bike to the tree so that if somebody comes by to steal it, they notice that it's not locked up. They run up, grab it, hop on the bike, start to ride off, oh. and then the rope tightens and it launches them yeah. over the handlebars, you know? It's like you set a trap and now this person just hurt themselves by stealing your bike. Yeah. You know? Um, anyway, yeah, but 1984 was one of the first books and I would say the whole dystopian genre there of 1984, Brave New World. Animal Farm. Of course. Um, are there any others like Fahrenheit musts? Fahrenheit 451. Yeah, Fahrenheit 451 is definitely a must. I would even say Slaughterhouse Five. Yeah, I think those would maybe some. be some of the top. I can't think of any others off the top of my head. Yeah, I can't I'm think. Sure I, I should have probably prepared. I wasn't thinking about talking like about apocalyptic dystopians, but you're the one who has the show. You have the show oh, notes. I know. I know, yeah. I know. Okay, the next one was the uh, Born to Run book, 
It's about the uh, Tara Umara tribe in central Mexico. They're like this tribe that has been largely uncontacted just because the terrain is so terrible. It's very mountainous. And they have a culture of running. Their whole culture of running. So the kids start off to go to grandma's house. You have to run. Everything's foot foot traffic. And then they travel in between their little towns. And I say like, I think the towns are pretty small, the little villages, but it's like 12 miles in between each town. So these people are just, their lifestyle is running. Anyway, just a quick synopsis of the book. They, uh, this guy goes down there, snatches up a few of these, uh, tribesmen and brings them to the United States and has them run the Leadville 100 and they do amazing at it. And, and so the whole questioning of the book though is, um, the, are the, uh, what would the word be? The declaration of the book is that the human being is a running animal Mm. so that human beings are the best long distance animal on the planet. If you just say foot race here to whatever humans are going to win. And so the guy's, you know, point in the book was that we were all born to run and that a lot of the problems and a lot of the reasons we can't run is because of our sedentary lifestyle today. And because of our shoes that we wear, they confine the toes and mess up our feet, you know? Um, so that will come up again here in just a second. And then, uh, the last book was uh, sex at dawn. Uh, this guy named Chris Ryan wrote it. It's this idea that in pre modernity that it was polyamorous relationships so that it wasn't one female matching up with one male typically. And so his whole argument is that there's parts of the human anatomy that express this. Uh, he looks at the closest, uh, primate genetically primate it's the bonobo, which is like, I guess, a polyamorous monkey. Very different than the chimpanzees, which were often, you know, compared to in that world or whatever. Uh, but he basically questions the state of monogamy is kind of what he's attacking uh, and challenging. And now it's been years since I've read that book. And I'm not educated enough or you know, uh, yeah, educated enough, I guess that'd be the right term. I'm not read enough to really be able to voice some of the biological and sociological um, contradictions that I do feel like exist within that book. So I'm not at all like promoting the book as saying like, this is 100% truth or whatever. But it was very interesting. There were very, he has a lot of points in that book um, that do challenge, like he, he wrote a subsequent book, which I have not read called civilized to death. And essentially it's, it's along the same lines as the born to run, just saying that we're not necessarily pre built, you know, or like manufactured to be monogamous. And he's saying that pre modernity, uh, ways of civ- of, uh, social construction led to, you know, polyamorous tribes, basically 
anyway, there, that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother talk. But those were the three books that I had read that really made me really question, uh, cultural residue. Uh, do you have any books that you can? Well, I think the first thing that I'm thinking, just listening to you go through this, because I haven't heard this, like I'm listening to you talk about this for the first time, you know? Right. And so first of all, I think it's interesting that everything that challenged you was a book. Like these well, were books. these were just three books. That oh, I know. I'm, I'm just saying, like, I do think that's actually a huge part of it, mm. right? Like reading challenges your point of view. Right. And that's a beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. And so I just think that, first of all, is really cool because I think everything that has challenged the way I think has mostly come through a book. And we were just talking about this a little bit ago, but yeah, I think... Most everything in all my post-colonial classes, like all every book I read in those completely challenged the way I think, just because it gave me such an alternate viewpoint that, of course, I've never, I mean, that sounds bad to say, but I've never thought of it because I've never been in a position to think about it. You haven't worn those shoes, so to speak. Yeah. And so now to think of it, you know, authors writing from all over the world, it just gives you such another point of view just from like what I see right here and... Texas. Right. You know. Right. You're well and it's it's uh funny that you're looking through somebody else's lens. Yeah. So you're reading their words. And that's know? the most beautiful part about it. Like right. how cool that you actually get to read these experiences. Mm-hmm. So I think uh mm. Chinua Achebe is one of the main ones that I thought was great. And then Franz Fanon and Antonio Gramsci. I think those three have been maybe the most influential mm. in how I think about things. Yeah. And those were all graduate level books, yes. right? Or I don't, like not books, but you read them in your graduate program. Yeah. Maybe my undergrad had stuff. I just don't know if I was on a point. Yeah. I think my trajectory of learning did skyrocket in grad school. I don't know. I'd have to think about undergrad. I don't know. Because I feel like in undergrad, we read a lot about our own culture. Right. Like American literature, British literature. We read Greek literature. You know what I mean? Right. So in a little bit, it's reinforcing all of our own culture. Uh-huh. And learning about what makes our culture our culture. Which is great. I mean, there is importance in that. Right. But I don't... I guess we... I mean, we did have world literature. So there were some pieces in that were, that were good. But just not quite as... Um, I don't know, challenging maybe. Adjacent maybe yeah. to your culture. Yeah. No, that's, uh, it is, so you just had three books. You just threw three well, books Well, yeah, you listed three, so I listed three. Um, or authors. So kind of what, what this leads me to, like the next point here, is um, what does it mean to be a base level human? That's what I think all of these different ideas, that, at least from these three books, is what I took, you know? Like what is, okay, now first off, you can almost imagine some sort of a thought experiment where it's just like, we're going to take a group of uh, 15 kids and we're going to have robots raise them and we're just going to see what culture develops. Like what happens? How do they exist? What, What happens? How do they progress or whatever? But I don't think that that's what a base level human would would be. I don't think it can work. Because like a base level human, like what a baby physiologically needs is that contact with a mama, 
is is being held a lot. I mean, like just the way that the baby's body even develops, it's almost dependent upon a mom being there. Well, that's to- what I was going to say. You can take language, for example, because there's the universal grammar theory, which states that humans have the innate ability to speak language, right? Right. So we're built, predisposed to learn language. To learn language. Yes. However, if you just leave a baby alone and they just grow up, they won't learn language. They, they can't like necessarily people. they can't necessarily generate. A yeah, language. they have they, to have the input in order to create the output. So right. in that sense, they like so a baby, any baby can grow up in any culture and learn any language. Right. It's but a they blank. need to be in some culture to learn a language. Right. Right. It's like a almost like a CD back in the day we'd burn CDs. Well, you had to have the the burner, but you also had to have the CD. Yeah. Like they were they so I don't think you can take a, like actually split the two. And so that's where it kind of gets me to okay, where where does culture generate from, right? If it's if if uh culture does not exist unless it is projected onto an individual. You know what I'm saying? If the individual is within it, a part of it. It's an organism almost. Yeah. Okay, so one of the things um, about tradition is that a lot of the times it'll leave a mark on you, you know? Uh, I think of, you know, for instance, out here in Stephenville, if you work on a ranch or spend much time on a ranch, you're going to end up having to fix a barbed wire fence. That's just how it kind of goes. And so there are certain, I mean, I'm sure people get cut in the same way from working on barbed wire fences on their hands, on their arms, you know? So that could be a sign, right? If, if, uh, if you were some sort of a sociologist, you know, studying the deeper levels of culture, it's like, well, look, all these males, they're all marked up. They, they have all these metal scrapes all over their arms. Well, it's because it, it's secondary to, to the job that the culture produces. Does that make sense? Yeah. So anyway, uh, one of them was body modification is where I'm going with this. In Born to Run, his uh, his thing was he was one of the things he talked about was how our shoes, the shoes we wear, uh, modify our feet. So our foot is supposed to be spread really thin and wide, and then your toes are supposed to be spread out, almost like your fingers spread out, and then when you run. If you're running barefoot, you do not strike your heel. You you land on the the you know the pad, the front of your foot, because if you strike your heel, it's gonna hurt. You know, whereas your toes can kind of absorb. It's like a shock absorber. And so he was saying how with Nike, whenever they came out with their first track shoe, quote unquote, it had a big old heel, so it allowed people to strike their heel when they were running and it not cause injury, you know? So they, it basically makes you run incorrectly, which over time would de- turn into injuries. Uh, so anyway, whenever I was thinking about the foot binding, uh, of, you know, our modern shoes, which I mean, you look at high heels and different things, but that got me thinking about the, uh, people who bind their feet, in uh, other cultures, 
Well, one specific culture here. I got it right here. So the foot binders, it so it was predominant during in China during the tenth to nineteenth century. And what's really strange is when you see these feet completely mashed up, they look like high heels. Like the the form, yeah. It you know just way smaller because it's just the foot. But um, so one of the things I didn't know about this was that this is kind of where Cinderella came from. Was the small foot that only that fit in the shoe. So whenever he went around the kingdom looking for the person, it was the person with the smallest foot that fit the shoe. It's kind of uh, interesting. That I was in like that. that was in like 850 AD is when that um, story of the prince and you know I don't think it directly transcribes, yeah. but it's uh, pretty interesting. But it was more of like a status symbol and it was looked on as like a beauty thing, you know. And then uh, moms usually did it to their daughters, so it wasn't like a priest, a male priest coming in and binding women's feet. It was typically moms doing it to daughters. And one of the things that they said or that was believed in that culture was that uh, the way it made the women walk made them better at sex, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, I uh, never heard of that until you had just told me that. And part of it, what was real weird was when you see these women walk on their feet, I always kind of thought that the that the Chinese silk dresses, you know which one I'm, think, I'm talking yeah, about? Yeah, I mean, like just a, like the traditional silk dresses. Traditional. I always thought that they were just really tight. So whenever the women were walking that way, it was because their dress was so tight. But after you see the women walking with their feet bound, I wonder if the way that the women walk today is a residue of how the women walked back then Could with be. the bound feet. Anyway, that was just a little side note. But another thing that kind of popped up in the various YouTube videos, I mean, I didn't do like real deep research on any of this, but was that uh, part of it was a discipline uh, technique because – the women had to sit at looms. Like that's kind of what women, one of the tasks that women did was sit at looms and make these fabrics. And if your feet don't work, you know, then you're not going to do a whole lot of walking or, you know, sitting at a loom doesn't look that bad whenever your feet are broken in half. Um, now this is a good time to interject that Shannon did point out to me that I am looking at a lot of these things in an appropriative manner, right? So I'm like looking back on them and kind of putting my own judgment spin because as, or you could probably say it yourself, but do you want to say what you were? Yeah. I mean, I think the way you did just discuss it was good. I was concerned at the beginning whenever you just told me like, hey, I want to talk about this and this and this. I was like, oh my gosh, that's a lot. We're talking about a lot of different cultures. I personally just like to be at least really prepared, really researched, know what I'm talking about so that I don't come across like, oh, look at just some American who's just kind of like right, looking yeah. down on all these other, oh, they break their feet. Look at that. Well, or that maybe, was one know, of the things that I wanted to, to, to do is it it is the, the line between, because for instance, I mean, I can stand pretty firmly even with the cultural, I'm not allowed to say whatever, 
and say, I don't agree with the practice of binding feet. And that's you know? fine. I just wanted to handle it in a respectful way. Oh, still. I know. I know. Well, I'm, which I so, think you did. So, so I think some of good. these, some of these other topics are a little less controversial. Like for instance, the crocodile men, this is another group of that do body modification, but the crocodile men of Papua New Guinea, I actually didn't have any sort of judgment on their, on their practice. Uh, would I want it done to me? Probably not. But, you know, as far as the foot binding, most of the time that happened at to a very young child. Yeah. Whereas these Papua New Guinea, these crocodile men, you're, you're, it's a coming of age thing. So you make the choice to participate in the ritual, which to me, it's like, okay, I don't feel bad for these guys for doing this thing that they are, you know, not only conscious that they're making the decision, but they know what they're getting themselves into. It's kind of a, a little bit of a different vibe, but one of the things they were trying to, they tried to invoke the spirit of the crocodile. They try to bring it, bring it onto themselves. And, uh, they dance all night. These men like flap around and they have, uh, and I, whenever I say flap around, like they literally just kind of like hop around, but they do it all night. Part of the ceremony. And then the whole village shows up. They, they heat up razors basically. And then they take the razors and like pinch, get a pinch of skin and then cut the skin. And they do that all over the body or not all over the body. Like they have these specific patterns that they, that they cut onto the guys, their chests and then their backs. And it looked pretty terrible. I mean, the, just watching them do it. I mean, you could tell it was not a very pleasant experience. And then afterwards they put uh, an antiseptic, an antiseptic all over it. Uh, and then that's like the beginning of the initiation. And I think that's the most painful part of it from what it looked like. But at the end of it, whenever they're done, they have these whelps, these scars develop all over where they were cut. And it almost gives them this skin that looks like a crocodile. You know, it has all these, uh, scars on it. It's pretty cool. Um, but they, they still practice that today in Papua New Guinea. Uh, you know, and I, you know, I couldn't find it, but there, I feel like there's a bit, there's an African tribe that I was thinking of. I could, the first one that popped up was these guys and I thought they sufficed the point, but I think that there's a, a tribe in Africa that does it too, that does the big scars and stuff. Uh, another one, this one's a little controversial, but the, uh, neck rings, they're predominant in, uh, Kayana, Kayan, Thailand. It's like Thailand, Burma line. And, uh, they, they like wrap these thick brass coils on these girls' necks. And as they get older, they extend the coils. So they end up with these real tall necks. Uh, one thing that I think is a misconception that I think a lot of people, I know I thought this, but was that if you took the rings off, their necks just broke, Oh, but I that's not actually it. true. Um, there's enough space and wobble room in the rings that they're still, that having their the neck, neck muscles. they're still carrying their neck. So their neck muscles are still strong. And it was interesting because I don't think that those women would let you take those rings away from them. It's you very know? meaningful. That's it kind is, of what I was talking about is we can look in and have our own opinions on whatever else, you know, but to those people, it is meaningful. And it, it's very difficult whenever you look from the outside. And to me, 
See, I'm not a big modification person though. You know, I'm not, I, I believe, I guess what I would project as my belief is that your body is what it is, you know, and you should love your body and you should like, we went on that run, a run earlier today and it was great. You know, I think you should do the most with your body that you can do. But then whenever it comes to certain ways of modifying your body, I don't necessarily agree with it. And because my whole thing is, is it good for the body? You know, like, is that, but I, these neck, there was old ladies with these long necks. They're living their life who, and they actually, if you looked around their village, they were all pretty skinny, you know, they looked healthy. It wasn't like, you know, so it, it might not be hurting them at all. Probably isn't hurting them at all. You know? Well, and then there's, you know, tribes where, like, the women basically scar their faces, mm-hmm. uh, which if if you read The Color Purple, it's in the book. There's okay. one of the girls that gets that done to her face because she wants, she chooses to go get it done because she still wants to identify with her culture, mm. you know? Yeah. Um, then there's, like, all the tattoos. There's how many variations of, like, right. tattoos within culture. Oh, yeah. So if you're thinking about levels of which are controversial, which are completely benign, I mean, like... Tattoos are pretty simple. You well, know? That, that's one of the things that Terrence McKenna pointed to. He he was looking for the archaic revival. He thought that the only way that we were going to survive modernity was by reinvoking what kept us sane in archaic times. Sane. What did I say? I think you said sane. Okay. In archaic times. And so he was saying like there is something inherent about almost like concert culture tattoos fat you know being around loud music dancing you know party atmosphere like that's more of an archaic thing that's not or really... is it just something that well i guess yeah i think it's something inherent to humans that we want to do that but in our current culture we commodify it right no 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 i'm not i'm not talking about the commodification of like i'm just saying that the the natural urge for humans to just get together and almost be in this free environment, you know, cause like in a concert environment, like we go to, when we went to like Larry Joe Taylor's, it feels pretty free when you're walking around, you know, like it, a lot of the social, uh, contract, a lot of the social contract is kind of paused at the gate. You know what I'm saying? It's almost like a, like a neutral zone. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? I mean, yeah, I guess if you think about um, Awesome City Limits. Yes. There, there is a dress code for it, in a way, an unspoken dress code, right? Right. I, at least for girls. I don't know how it uh, is for guys. I don't know. I don't know if I ever paid attention. But I'm not going to go. I mean, you can. Nobody's going to stop you. But like, if you just go wearing jeans and a t-shirt. That's fine. You can go. But you you kind of... You, you, you want to go put on some fringe or some sparkles and just wear a bra and You want to show shorts, out. Show out a little some bit. Some boots, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's like Burning Man, where it's become such a spectacle that it's its own thing. It's its own thing, but see, here's what I wonder. But I think people just want to get away from... What they what's what is in their everyday life? That's like, what I'm. This meaning. is what I dress like this every day, so it's kind it's of novelty. fun to go out. And, it's like a novelty. Yeah. And so, to me, and I'm probably completely projecting this onto like our archaic past, but I imagine thirty thousand years ago, there was probably still those same girls 
in their early 20s that were getting ready to go to like the full moon ceremony, you know, and we're going to dress out basically because that's part of being a human. You want to. Except for maybe it was like 15. It was probably 15. <laughs> yeah. I mean, who knows? I don't know. I don't know. It was probably all the way up to like six year olds. They were probably going out there and showing out back then, you know? Anyway, we kind of went down a little bit of a rabbit hole, but, uh, but one of the things that popped up that I thought was interesting, this is the last little bit of the body modification, but um, is circumcision. That was the, you know, because I was wanting to do two women body modifications and then two men. And I thought that this was uh, kind of applicable because it's something that's done to infants typically in our culture. And, you know, you look back on it and it's kind of like a Jew thing, you know, like it's, Christianity is very tied to Judaism and Jewish people do circumcision. But even in the very beginning or like the beginning of Christianity in the Bible, in the New Testament, there's like, this comes up. Do you have to be circumcised? Do you not? And the, the, they decide, no, you don't have to be because it's not part of the old law or whatever. Yeah. But then for whatever reason in modern America, it's super prevalent. Yeah, from what I understand, like when I looked into it, a lot of it had to do with cleanliness, which is still controversial and still, it wasn't necessarily proven that it was cleaner, but that's just what the argument for it was. One of the arguments. One of the arguments was that- The other one was sexually transmitted diseases. Yeah. Go down. And they were saying that it's kind of, one of the things that I'd read is that it's almost preventative in a way, that if you are 30 and you have something go wrong or you get an infection or whatever and you have to get circumcised, it's going to suck when you're 30. Mm. So a lot of times they just said, well, just go ahead and do it at birth. That way you just don't even have to mess with any of that. Right. Like don't worry about it. Because, you know, and again, and I don't know, this is just all stuff that I read on the internet, so who knows. But like I had read sev- several people talking about like working in nursing homes, working with older men who had issues because... Of whatever like, various reasons. Yeah, alert urinary tract infections. Yeah. They get a little too lazy to pull the hood back. And then they're now older and have to deal with this. Just Right. And it's just No, that, that's, so. that is, well, it was interesting whenever it came up because that one of the things that popped up was this health aspect of it, and which does make you wonder, okay, in the United States, in modern area, you know, modern times, we do a lot of preventative stuff yeah. that isn't actually, you know, useful. It's just these doctors. It's a way to make a buck almost. Although, because my mom was always very much like that, you know, oh, they're, they're just trying to take our money. So when they told me I needed my wisdom teeth out at 13, mom was right. like, no, you're fine. But now you need them out. Now I need them out. <laughs> and now I'm not on their insurance anymore. <laughs> yeah. like, I've got my own. It's like, dead comment. Mom. Oh, yeah, I know. That's funny. See, and I was actually a little bit the opposite whenever I was a kid. My mom was like, doctor, doctor, like, let's go to the doctor. You know, she was, she, which she's just, you know, a very, I don't know what the word to be, would be like germaphobe. Not really. She's very into cleanliness. Yeah. Yeah. And and it's just like, if there's something going on, it's like, hey, let's get this thing fixed. So we, we ended up going, well, I didn't actually ever even go that much back then. I've never really been much of a. A doctor guy, but one of the terms that came up through my uh, little bit of research on circumcision that I really liked was an intactivist. 
And what's that referring so to? That's a I don't person, know what it is. <laughs> that's a person who is against circumcision. Oh, okay. You're an intactivist. Hmm. Which I actually really like that term because I'm an intactivist on pretty much anything voluntary surgery. You know, to me, it's kind of like, you know, and, and it's not really fair because none of it really affects me, but it's like plastic surgery, getting your boobs bigger, you know, Hey, I want my nose to go the other direction or, you know, my cheeks are too low or my lips need to be bigger or all this, that kind of stuff. I would say I'm an intactivist saying like, no, just keep your lips you know, like who cares what your lips look like? How good's the food you're eating? You know, that's what I always think is like, you can tell somebody who's living life right when they're eating really tasty food and like not a lot of it. You know what I'm saying? Like the people who are like truly tasting their food. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like good food? I mean, yeah. Yes. Yes. But go I ahead. Know. Oh, I was just thinking... Well, it's hard because this entire conversation I have been thinking about Americans. And so, you know, whether you mean even something as simple as like piercing your ears, right? Which is pretty harmless. Most people aren't against that, right? Right. Then you do have um, boob jobs, Botox, yeah, plastic surgery, any type of cosmetic surgery that is body modification. And my my thought and i don't know i this is something i'm just thinking of so i would have to actually see if this pans out correctly but my thought is when i look at other cultural body modifications right like even the alligator men or the rings or whatnot that is a long-standing tradition in that culture Mm. that it is being passed down from mother to daughter this is what we do or from father to son you know whichever one it is but then i wonder like when i look now at hey right now it's super popular to have bushy eyebrows so everyone's getting their eyebrows tattooed on but just 10 years ago it was really popular to have really thin pencil and eyebrows and then it's really popular now to have really big lips but i'm sure in 10 years that's gonna go away right and so it seems almost that we're just chasing something as opposed to actually passing down a tradition Mm. And so, because something just doesn't sit right with me with a lot of that, because it seems like you're just chasing something that's never attainable. And I wonder if that's what it is, if, like, we're not actually passing something down to our kids other than insecurities. You know? Yeah, no, that's that's, uh, the exact... That's the exact sentiment that I was wondering with it. Um, I can't... I, I didn't write the thing down, what it's called... But you know the, uh, what's the red dot? Oh, like for India? Yeah. I can't remember what it's called. It's like the Bahari or uh, like Bahar, Baharaba. Let's just, just stop. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't keep trying to say. Anyway, um, one of the things that I thought was really interesting. Bindi. The Bindi. I knew it started with a B. The Bindi. Um, you know, as I was researching some of this stuff, I, I stumbled into a cultural appropriation video and it was actually about concert goers in, uh, this was in England. Um, but they were wearing like a lot of them, like they were wearing native American headdresses and it's all these English people and they're wearing Indian from India, like silk you know, dress suits and 
a lot of the women were wearing bendies, and not only that, but like they were wearing like traditional Indian uh, cultural stuff. And so that's kind of what the episode was over. It was these people, you know, commenting on it. And they had an Indian girl who she was like, you know, whenever I was a kid, you know, other kids would make fun of me for dressing up in my traditional Indian clothing when my mom would do it. Like I had to earn this. Like this is, this is my culture that my mom fought against the, the outside culture to instill in me, you know? And now some, you know, white woman can just, which what you're talking about is cultural appropriation. It is cult. That's what I'm saying. Is it was over cult. The, yeah. the video was over that. You Which know? is hard because that is such a big topic. That's what I was kind of saying earlier. With like we we in no way can go as deep into all these topics as we possibly oh, could. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But that's where cultural appropriation comes into play because I feel like I hear a lot of people dismiss it or oh we can't do anything anymore. Everything's whatever. And then you do have people on the other side who say everything's cultural appropriation. And to me, from what I've read and studied, it just seems like the idea of cultural appropriation is exactly that. When someone comes in, like if I were to go in and take something from another culture who has been oppressed, I get to wear it, I get to be popular because of it, and then I'm still shunning or oppressing those people who are doing it. Right. You know, and so like people talk about hair, like if I were to try to curl my hair and throw it out. And then it's like, oh, how fun, cool, good for you, you look so good. But then those people are still being oppressed for having that kind of hair. Mm-hmm. So that's where it kind of comes in. Is like, it's one thing to take something and appreciate it and appreciate what it is and see it as a as really cool and a sign of beauty or whatever. But it's another thing to take because it's a novelty to you while still oppressing the people who do it. But see, and now granted... Um my hair actually does fro. Yeah. Like it's sitting here pretty froed right now. Um, yeah, like braids, cornrows was one of the topics that popped up in this, uh, on this line of talking and thinking. And, and I do think that's very interesting because I, th- you know, for a white woman to wear braids, that's one thing. But like cornrows are a very specific. Yeah. And like, one of the things that the the girl was saying was, and I think you've maybe brought this up before, but that they actually would do escape plans in the in the braids. I've heard way, that. It was like a way to communicate amongst the plantation, you know, which is kind of amazing in its own way, like that you could look at braids on a head and have some sort of directions off of it. That's just kind of a incredible, but... You know, when you when you have something like that that is so culturally specific. Well, and so culturally meaningful yeah, for them. Yeah. That so I don't know, that you know, that it did leave me at a little bit of a loss because uh you know, whenever you are discussing something as broad as culture, it is very difficult to not interject your like for instance, the foot binding. You know, to me, that just looked, it it is crippling. It's crippling to those women, you know, but now you're telling me, how can I look at a 70 year old woman who had her feet bound, who bound her daughter's feet and then whose daughter bound her granddaughter's feet. And she's looking at me and telling me that it's a beautiful practice. Who am I to tell her that she's wrong? Well, I think that's the hard thing about it is it's, 
it's not really right or wrong. Right, right. I don't think anything within culture is really just right or just wrong. Like, it's not black and white. Because I think culture can be both good and bad. Right. Culture is a very, very good thing. It's what humans thrive on. So we need it. There's well, no humanity without culture. And whenever I was first approaching this topic, I was actually very negative in it. You know, at the very beginning of it, I was like approaching it and I was looking at all of these really negative things, in my opinion, things that about our culture, our present culture, and I was viewing them in a very negative way. And you corrected me on that. You know, you're, you're kind of like, Hey, to the, to the woman with the foot bound that for whatever reason might be so important to her. It's incredibly meaningful whether or not we like it. Yeah. I mean, it's a participation in a in a tradition that's been going on for generations, you know? Yeah. But then your point about the plastic surgery is, is a very good point when like what happens whenever the cultural pressure switches from your parents and like your direct family to culture. So for instance, um, the crocodile men in New Guinea, they're the reason that they're getting those cuts is because it's important to the older men in their tribe and they want to take a place by the older men in their tribe. Uh, it, it is weird whenever it's, Hey, I want, I want my uh, shins to be pointier. So I'm going to go to a doctor and consult him and say, how much, how, how many thousands of dollars am I going to have to spend to make my shins pointy? Well, and that was something we'd kind of discussed earlier is the capitalistic side of it where for a lot of stuff in America, you are having to go to a doctor and spend a lot of money. So, of course, it's being advertised to you that you want it. Right. So it's being sold to you through Hollywood, through media, through just anything. Everything you see now is like, this is what beauty is. I was just Pay a lot of money to get it. Yeah, I was just telling you the other day that they were, uh, I watched, what was it? The Change Up? Yeah, The Change Up. And it's an older movie, but there's a couple of boob scenes in it. And all of the boobs in it are like fake boobs. Not like plastic surgery boobs. Like the chick is wearing something. Like they, it's not even their like skin. A prosthetic? It's like a prosthetic. It's like it looks completely fake. Like a completely fake shirt that they're wearing. You know? And it was just so weird to me. And I, I was like, okay, I was just trying to imagine if I was a mother that had just given birth to two twins that are, you know, under a year old. And then Hollywood's flashing that. Oh, this is what boobs look like. Even like, after giving birth. That's not what boobs well, look like. Well, they may like. look like that immediately when you have a lot of milk, but then yeah, that's not what they look like. Whenever they're that. exploding with milk. <laughs> yeah. No, they didn't look like that. <laughs> Thanks. But, it, <laughs> uh, but you know what I'm saying? Oh, I mean, I it do. looked like a Ken doll up there, a Barbie doll, you know? Ken, I mean, it, hopefully not a Ken doll. Well, I just mean the Ken doll for the chest, you know? <laughs> it was like just this perfect, pla- it looked plastic, you yeah. know? But it, it is just weird whenever we don't necessarily, part of what the point of this was, of today's episode is to call into question the things that are just residued onto us, right? Well, and I think, I don't know if this is what you're intending, but 
when you talk about cultural residue and you even mentioned like maybe that's how those cultures still walk because of the feet binding or like the women still walk. And I don't know if that's true or not. I don't either. But I think about our culture, um, especially like Western culture, which is highly influenced from Greek culture. Mm -hmm. And think about that. Like how crazy is it that Greek culture still infiltrates our society as oh, much as it does like look at the capitol building and the white house and our architecture all, our everything. art i mean our theater art. yeah um a lot of the language that we use just the ideas like how we tell stories with like a moral mm-hmm. um story or like a lesson in them and, you know the, yeah. there's so many aspects of it that are still present what is like it, the hero's journey like know? an epic an epic it goes all the way back yeah, I mean, which is... Beowulf, just, like literally the very first story ever. Yeah, so yeah, I mean, I think... I don't know, I guess... It's important, right? Like this stuff that we just wake up and just go about our lives and, hey, go watch a movie, I'm not even thinking about Greek influences, right? But it's there and it's always there. Like, it does influence every aspect of our life, like oh, just yeah. culture in general and who knows where it's coming from. Like a lot of times we haven't studied it to know exactly where everything in our culture is coming from, mm-hmm. but it's going to be there. So I think if I'm gauging it correctly, like what you're saying is what is left over, what is in our lives that we're not aware of? Well, let me tell you exactly where I'm going with. That. Okay, please do. So, Really, one of the topics that I was wanting to approach with this was, do you own your culture or does your culture own you? You know, this idea of, are are you choosing to wear the bindi or is the bindi choosing to wear you? You know, like what which direction does it go? Now, I'm going to use something that's a little bit more visceral as an example for us, which would be cell phones and tablets, you know, mostly just little interactive screens. Uh, I was going to talk a little bit about the spy balloon, the big uh, psyop that just flew over the country. Uh, Because it was funny, I've talked to several people about this, and they didn't come to the natural conclusion that you came to without even, you know, probably looking into it at all, which was, you're worried about the Chinese floating a balloon 10,000, you know, however high up in the air, but you're not worried about everybody carrying around these Apple like phones. Like literally TikTok? Yeah, TikTok. Owned by China? Owned by China. But literally these phones, all of them were built in China. You're telling me that there's no chance that there's some sort of a sleeper program that they just, you know, happened accidentally to implant into every single phone? Well, that and I mean, not American. even to get conspiratorial or anything. If I, which I, I don't have a TikTok because when I went to go sign up for it, it says by agreeing to these, um, to this information, you are giving your information basically to the Chinese government, all of my information, which I'm sure they already have anyways, but no, I'm not going to agree to give it to you right right now. You've taken it from me, but I haven't agreed to it. Right. So I, I do think that. We seem to like to make a big deal out of some of the stuff. And I'm not saying that the spy balloon wasn't something. Well, but see, this is is what I was. We're also willingly giving away our freedom. But that's what I was going to say is. To me, that's a sign of its cultural impact. The phone's cultural impact. We can't let go of it. That it's like, man, I can't believe they'd let that balloon float over our country. Yet, no, do not take my phone from me. I, that's Um, not even an 
Ted Kaczynski. Yeah, Ted Kaczynski. His manifesto, <laughs> which again, or I don't know, again, but just to put it out there, I'm not for bombing people. That is bad. Ted Kaczynski is the Unabomber. But this is exactly what he predicted in his manifesto. Yeah, and it is a pretty brilliant. So in the future, we will have an episode on that because I think we're seeing it become more and more real. Oh, yeah. Every every second of the day, really. Yeah. Um, and, and I guess just to bring it back, like it is now like technology is intertwined with our culture. Oh, yeah. Yeah. To the point where that's what I was going to say is, you know, I, I was looking at all of these other um, cultures and how they're modifying their bodies. And then, I mean, they're you can't say that in 15 years, thumb surgeons aren't going to be making billions of dollars because everybody's jacking up their thumbs. Well, they have already said that it messes with your pinky. Oh yeah. Resting the phone on your pinky. Yeah. I mean, it, it is, I mean, we're literally modifying our bodies, but even to the point where, uh, you know, if you're not carrying your phone in your pocket, you might hear it or feel it buzz. Yeah. You know, stuff the phantom, like that. The phantom, they call it like phantom buzzing or yeah, something. Yeah, phantom buzz or whatever. And um, but what I was thinking was really interesting, and this is this we're finally getting there. We're fifty minutes into you the You mean episode. this is finally the main point? We're finally getting there. Oh my gosh. Okay. Is, <laughs> the question is when we look at our culture now as an adult, what is the culture that we're willing to then turn around and and subject to our kids what do we want to be handing down to our kids or not hand down but like literally break their feet right that's what so i'm 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 trying to imagine having a little girl and my wife you coming to me and saying hey i want to wrap this shit around her feet and probably break every bone in her foot to do it you know and me be like great idea let's do that for our culture Right. I mean, that one's extreme, but what if you did have a little girl and she came to you and said, I don't want to shave ever because that's just a societal convention. I probably I would be okay shaving. with that. I think I would be okay with that. Cause I what, mean, no, no, that no, no, no. Like, See, this is, this is what I'm saying though, is to me, whether you want to shave your legs or shave your armpits or whatever, that. That's really a pretty trivial. I mean, true. I was just thinking, yeah. uh, It's not going to affect the way my daughter runs a half marathon. True. Right? I mean, yeah, that one is an extreme one. Yes. So what I'm saying is, but what I'm saying is, what are we willing to hand down to our children that will cripple them? Right? So, for instance, the way that I view foot binding is what we're doing to our kids. Yeah. So like we just don't quite understand it. Right. We don't quite understand it, but there's, there's two aspects to it, you know? So for instance, like kids on tablets, right? Uh, My, my mother bought both of my kids, uh, their own, actually all of her grandkids. She bought them all the exact same tablet, which is an Amazon tablet. They can actually, most of the games on it, Emmett downloaded himself. You know, found he he's playing with this thing, interacting with it. Um, but I would say we limit his time. Yeah. Pretty, uh, pretty, pretty well, pretty healthily. And most of the time, it's not an issue. Mm-hmm. He goes through very quick phases, a few phases where he's like, can I have my tablet? Can I have my tablet? But it's usually only one or two days and typically... You know, typically we're, he's engaged in other things, you know? Um, 
but it is the ultimate temptation tool. And you've seen this out in public. Everybody's seen this out in public. You have the kid. They go grocery shopping. She shoves the tablet in his face. They go out to dinner. The dad shoves the tablet in the kid's face, right? You're just trying to appease these kids because, like I said, it's the ultimate temptation because a lot of times little kids are little shitheads and they're, they ruin your experience. Not only the other people in the restaurant's experience, but your experience, you know? So it is a, it is a huge temptation to just be able to be like, hey, give them the phone 20 minutes. Yeah, and I guess to think about it in, um, I don't know, kind of like the foot binding, it is teaching the kids to conform in That's, a way. Yes. Because if you're taking your kids to a restaurant and they're acting up and they're not sitting well and they're maybe being loud, which, yes, like kids just need to learn how to sit in general. But at the same time, it's like, hey, I need my kid to sit and be quiet right now when I tell him to. Mm-hmm. And I need him to conform to these standards so that I can enjoy my meal out. You know what I mean? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it's almost... Uh, and I'm not trying to like blame people who do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just... No, yeah, no no judgment here. This is what I'm saying. This is us. You know, whenever I'm saying it, we don't necessarily... I mean, I think our kids maybe had a phone out in public. Well, and I, that's what I'm saying. Like, I'm always reevaluating my thought on it. Because I have been the mom who has given Callahan a phone on public because he's about to throw a big temper, temper tantrum oh, in yeah. public and I there's just no way out of it. Yeah. I'm in a situation I can't just get out. And yeah. No it's one wants literally to a bomb job. with a fuse lit. Yeah. So there are times, like, so I get it. I'm not, I mean, I've been there. And I, even with the tablet, I'm always thinking, what's the right thing by my kids? Because on one hand, I'm exposing them to a lot. They're being engaged and stimulated and they are learning. A lot of those games are educational. And then on the flip side, my kids also need to learn how to be bored and mm-hmm. learn how to just entertain themselves. And yep. they don't need to be constantly constantly stimulated. But one, what's one, of, the line? one of the things that got me thinking about this a little bit was the fact that Emmett will be bored with the tablet. Yeah, he'll get bored with it. Well, yeah, that's I mean, also because we don't have the internet on well, it. It's I mean, just even, downloaded games. But by the time he's like 10 and he's had a toy... That he's had since, you know, he's going to be doing schoolwork on it. And there's he's probably going to get bored with the tablet, you know. Um, but that's, well, that's why I was calling it. That's why I was calling it the uh, the ultimate temptation with kids. Because it it is something that burns hot, you know. <laughs> like, you know, if I hand my kid this tablet, he's going to be looking at this tablet for the next 30 minutes. Well, no and problem. I think to go off of a societal thing. A, a, ta- a conversation that we had about the tablets is that Emma and Callahan are going to be exposed to this throughout their entire life. Right. They got so withholding this from them until they're teenagers is not actually going to help them either. Right. So if I want them to actively participate in society, it's benefiting them to start learning some of the stuff young. And it's kind of I, one of the ways I think about it is, okay, Leonardo da Vinci had like, or no, let's go Pablo Picasso, you know, just because I know a little bit more about him. But he had a palette of paint and a canvas, right, from the time he was a very little kid. And he was creating what by the time he was at the end of his career? Abstract, impressionism, 
really creative, radical, radically different, you know, but he was trained as a classical painter as a little child, right? But now imagine you hand that kid um, a tablet at that same age, right? I mean, the creativeness, the imagination is still going to be there. He just needs to know how to use the tool. And I think the big difference is the training, right? It's like, how are we training our kids? Because I think that's probably the, the big difference, right? Is we don't want to be creating the next generation of addicts, right? Like we don't, so we, and like, I know we've talked about this with school or just with Emmett as a child going through a child's life. He, there's sugar everywhere he turns. Oh my gosh. There's candy everywhere he turns, right? And then it's, hey, do this for me and I'll give you a piece of candy. Hey, do this for me. Here, here's a treat. You know, there's always just sugar everywhere. And so what I was thinking is like, imagine the new norm for like the quote unquote streamers generation, right? Emmett and Callahan have never had to wait on a television show. They've never had to be like, I want to watch Paw Patrol. It comes on at 3.30. I'll watch it then. They say, I want to watch Paw Patrol, and they hop on Netflix, and they watch Paw Patrol right then. You know, Even something as subtle as that is going to culturally have this huge impact on, on that generation that's going to make them a, a different generation than us. Well, I think back to the phones... And I guess in my mind, I'm like, I'm still trying to bring it back to foot binding and just cultural practices, right? And I think with phones, it's interesting because you do have varying levels, right? Like you have moms who don't give their phones or don't give kids any access to technology. Then you have some who will do TV, someone who will do maybe a computer. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Then on the other end, you have the moms who have the Instagram accounts for their kids, right? The Instagram yeah, like Emmett could have his own Instagram account oh, that I'm yeah. running for him and monetizing it. And by the time he's 18, he'd have thousands of followers, mm. which is, I guess, and not, I'm not trying to like say for or against it, but if you're talking about binding, like mm. think how much you were actually putting on your child at that young age. That again, if we are talking about consent, like we kind of mentioned that it's a little different if, a, if it's being done to a kid versus an adult who's consenting to it. But when it's done to a kid, and they may say, yeah, I love it, when they're four, what's that mean? And now you are subjecting them to thousands of people and gr- them growing up with that. That is that is <laughs> binding them. Well, Do you know what I mean? Like, as you were saying that, I was sitting there thinking, you know, the concept of if you start a compounding interest bank account or savings account and you put a hundred dollars a week or whatever into it, you know, how much money that kid would have at 18. Like I was Mm -hmm. kind of thinking that, you know, is like what the cultural binding or the feet, you know, impacts them for their entire life. But now are there, if we are playing with that concept, is there some sort of cultural thing that we can strap onto them that will ensure success through their entire life. You know what I'm saying? I like, mean, education. If, if we're able to modify the chill, you know, like uh, I, one of the things I was watching, this wasn't research for this. It's just because I'm kind of interested in weird stuff sometimes. 
uh, the head binding. Have you ever seen that? I don't think so. Uh, look up on your phone real quick. Elongated skulls. Oh, I do think I've seen that. So actually. what's really weird is that there is a group of the elongated skulls that they found that the cranium, the bone, is actually bigger. It's not a bound head. The head itself is Artificial bigger. cranial deformation. Yes. Um, but, you know, like, imagine, like, the baby's head is this gooey little thing that you can manipulate and make it grow in these weird ways, right? Like, is there a way you can make something, like, uh, almost imagine a thing like, what if we had this uh, shin binder? It's a shin binder, but your kid will run the 100-meter dash 10% faster, you know, if you break their shin in half. It's funny because it seems like a lot of the body modification has to do with beauty and societal, um, gosh, prestige. Right, right. You which, know? like which you is were saying, me- I mean, it is meaningful. I'm not trying to take away from that or minimize it. It is meaningful, but like you were saying, it's all about this prestige. Like, I'm just saying, it's never not going to be there, right? Like that will always exist, as we see throughout history and through different cultures. We're always going to find a way to make people in societies uh, beautiful, right? Right. But yeah, I don't but, know how to but, take things. And it, make but it them. depends on how you define beauty. Yeah, right? I'm just saying there's always going to be a form of beauty. Yes. Well, yes. And so that's the argument against like something like uh, communism or something where you're wanting to to have the same outcome for every single person. Because if you have a six foot five man versus a five foot six man, well, if the game is basketball, one guy has a distinct advantage. If the game is uh I don't know, chess. You know Let's get back to body modification. Different different parameters, you know. Well, I mean, really, so that, that's kind of, that was really where I was wanting to get to for this show was how prejudiced I was against something like foot binding. But then when I look at my own example, uh, look for an example from my own culture. Now, granted, there is stuff going on in our culture that's pretty extreme. I don't necessarily care to talk about some of that stuff, but whenever you look at something that is very ubiquitous and it's across, it's, it's in every household. Everybody who's listening to this podcast is probably listening on a phone. And if you have a child, then right there, this is something that will like, uh, for instance, you know, somebody might remember about their granddad. Oh, he always had a flask on him, you know? Okay. Well that means he's drinking whiskey all day long. Right. You know, oh, well, my dad always had his phone on him growing up. It's just like, what does that mean? How does that impact the kid? And that's ubiquitous, you know? Like, there's other things you can look at. And I think that this is a real problem with our society is when we focus in on these, like, very weird outlier cases. For instance, like the the mom who's trying to tran- transition her kid 
Oh, there is that popular story of I think I think they're in California. Well, the dad I think lives in Texas. Yeah, but she moved to California so that she could transition her kid. The dad is objecting to it, but they are basically taking away his parental rights over it. Right. And I'm not really following. I'm not up to date on it. I'm not so. following the story either. I'm just saying that there are examples yeah. like that. But in my personal opinion, and or my personal experience, those are more outliers. You know, you might have a kid who's trans or I'm, I've, you know, grown up around kids that probably would identify as trans, but they're not going to go through a body modification surgery until later in life. Right. Like I, I never really came into contact with any kids that I know of growing up that were seeking body modification surgeries, except for maybe like teenage girls wanting breast implants. You know, which was really weird to me always. You know, you got like a 16-year-old girl. It's like, you know, like why? That uh, early because they've life, been watching you know? the Victoria's Secret fashion show because they've seen all the Playboy. They've seen all the movies. It's just so weird to me because. That's what is like, imagine, idealized. Imagine being that age and like whatever hairstyle you were wanting. I was that age first. I mean, I'm saying I was the girl at 16 who wanted bigger boobs, right? right. That's, that's all I was told to want. So right. like, I, I get it. Like I've been that person. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because like when I talk about Victoria's Secret and Playboy, like both of those things were very prominent when I was in high school. Right. You know, yeah. those were big deals. And so what do all those girls look like? Right. Like Barbie dolls. Yeah. Uh, but just imagine like, 16 year old you the haircut you probably had then and it's like okay that's the haircut you're going to be stuck with forever oh yeah you know like that's your new haircut that you're going to have forever it's like who makes those decisions or who can make those decisions you know um but it it is it is kind of a crazy like i agree with you it was a very broad topic you know Well, i feel like it did focus mainly on the body modification side of it Right. Obviously, with culture, there's so much more to talk about, but we kind of just narrowed in on one aspect of it, just yeah. the body modification and really, aspect I think, of it. I think the reason I like the body modification aspect of it is mostly because it's just such a visual representation. It's just so out there. You know, you don't have to look hard to see some, like, and that's the point of the modification is it, it's supposed to be in your face. You're supposed to not be able to turn away from it, Yeah, which is just interesting in itself. You know, like what, what's that about there, you know, but anyway, uh, any other, anything to wrap up on the show? No, I don't think so. I feel like we went in a pretty, it was, we cast a pretty broad <laughs> net today. Yeah. I feel like we went in a lot of different directions, Yeah, but um, they all tied together through the name of culture. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, and I mean, like I said, do you own your culture or does your culture own you? Like, that's the main point. And I think whenever you have, you know, like the crocodile men, you know, if you go to one of those guys, he would probably say, this is one of the most important things. And if you take this away from me, you know, if you take this away from our culture, you destroy what it is to be us, you know. And I could probably, I would 100%, you know, it's it's the same thing with like bull riding. You know, we're here in Stephenville, Texas, cowboy capital of the world. Bull riding is dangerous as hell. And I personally know people that their entire life changed because they got on that bull, that wrong bull at the wrong time and ended up in the wrong place. And, you know, so, but 
it's culturally very important and very relevant to certain people. So do and there's you, a status that goes with it. And there's people that are saying, well, I want on the back of that bull. And who am I to tell that guy that he's not allowed to get on the back of that bull? I'm not anybody when it comes to that. You see what that animal looks like and you're willing to get on the back of it? Who am I to tell him that he can't do that? You know, it's the same thing with like motocross guys. I think those guys are out of their damn mind now. What's your point? Uh, just mostly saying that it's, it's very difficult to look at somebody's culture and project into it your opinion oh, and yes. your val okay. your, your values, right? Yes. Um, because you can't take something away from somebody that they're, they're, they've dedicated their entire life to it and you just don't like it. You know, so that was kind of my main point. Trying yeah. To, okay. Okay. That makes sense. I got up. a little lost there, but we're good. Yeah. I'm yeah, following. Yeah. It's just, I, I know like one, do you remember? I'm sure you remember. I had a buddy, um, that I worked with in Amarillo who was friends with a guy who broke, broke steers for calf roping for tie down for, um, what is it called? Tie down. Yeah. Tie down roping. Sure. Anyway, we went out there to help them, like, tie up the, the calves, you know. Are you talking about when I was with you? Yeah, yeah. Okay. And we, we flanked them and tied them up. And it's kind of to get the cat the calves used to being tied up so that they don't fight and get out because then that screws up the score if they're fighting to get out. Anyway, we're out there doing it. And one of the cowboys that was out there, I'm not a cowboy. I wasn't a cowboy then. I'm not a cowboy now, really, you know. And one of the cowboys that was out there was talking, he was commenting about PETA and how PETA was wanting to basically shut down the entire rodeo and was wanting to, you know, make this event illegal, that event illegal and all this different stuff. And, and while I can kind of see what PETA's talking about a little bit, you know, occasionally one of those calves, their neck snaps or a leg will snap or it's not super common, you know, but it does happen. It's a pretty traumatic looking thing you know whenever they do it so i can kind of see where they're coming from a little bit but i don't support that either you know i don't know it's very it's very tricky when you're looking at a culture that you're not invested in you know what i'm saying i guess that's what i was just trying to wrap up yeah no i think that's an interesting but that was fun though that was fun it's hard when that is when you have fun doing that stuff so uh anyway so if you are still listening to this episode, if you will please like it, subscribe, follow, comment us on Instagram. Uh, we will have all of our links in the show notes. Let us know what future episode you would like. Future episodes, and we're shooting for the fifteenth of every month. So, like, mark your calendars. You know, set, Hold us to it. set an alarm on your you phone. Know, on, on your phone that you have with you too much. <laughs> uh, and anyway, thank y'all for joining us. And uh, until next time, peace out. Goodbye. All right.